has the at Bayer Crop Science. She is a key liaison between stakeholders involved in international seed trade and works to prevent the spread of seedborne plant pathogens. In this role, Dr. Thomas is a force behind the scenes, blending scientific innovation into effective policy decisions. Thank you, Dr. Thomas, for joining us today. I'm excited to hear your talk. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you all um, for the introduction and the opportunity. Uh, I will actually turn my video off here in a minute, but today I'm gonna talk about uh, a little bit of what I do. I would say I'm a non-traditional pathologist. So I'm a plant pathologist by training. I have a master's and PhD. Actually, that was in uh, turf grass pathology out of Ohio State. Um, from there, out of grad school, I went to California and worked for the state uh, Department of Ag for about a year and a half. Uh, kind of realized I wasn't a government employee and then ended up in industry. And um, so I'll talk a little bit today around seed health, which is an area I know well, and talk a little bit about global trade. So thank you for the introduction and the opportunity. So it looks like there might be a little bit of a delay. But we will go ahead. Um, so today, today uh, I'll talk a little bit, uh, give you just a little bit of kind of that background on the seed industry. We'll touch on, you know, as Amanda said, a little bit about that trade and regulations piece, um, talk specifically around seed health, um, and, and touch a little bit on kind of what that seed supply looks like, particularly for fruit and vegetable species, and what that business model is. And then I thought it would be interesting to touch that there's been um, a new disease emerge, tomato brown rugose fruit virus. It's a bit of a mouthful, or TOBRFD. Um, it's a tobacco virus. It recently emerged, and there's been some you know, impact to the tomato markets globally on this. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the virus itself and how this has impacted kind of that current regulatory and trade environment. So talking a little bit about seed movement, seed trade. So to start with, um, for plant material to remove around uh, the globe, generally that moves under a phytosanitary certificate. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with that, what a phyto, it's a short term phyto, what that is, I view it kind of like a birth certificate for a seed lot. It really tells you um, what that lot is, where it was grown, how much. Um, oftentimes it'll also tell you if there was anything official. So if the government um, did field inspections on it or did particular testing on it, that gets documented on that certificate. And like I said, most, most seed moves around the globe with that certificate. That's that official paperwork allowing it entry and exit, uh, entry and exit from various countries. Um, from a trade standpoint, um, the trades, so any country that um, participates in, you know, kind of official trade generally works for the world trade or the WTO, right? The World Trade Organization. When it comes to plant material, there have been, actually when it comes to any material that moves, there are international standards for phytosanitary measures that have been adopted and put out by um, the IPPC. So that's the International Plant Protection Convention. And they put these ISPMs together because what they're trying to do is say, okay, uh, here's the guidance for each country. So here's the guidance on how you can determine, you know, what a regulated pest is to you and what pests meet those requirements. Um, how are you going to um, assess risk? How are you gonna mitigate risk? What are some general measures that you could require? that companies or countries, you know, whoever's exporting that material and wants to enter your country, how, how you can set those rules on what needs to be met. So you can go out there, actually, if you just Google um, 
actually uh, ISPMs, IPPC, you'll end up at their website. There are a bunch of different measures there. Um, the big one for us was in May of 2016. So, wow, it's been a little while. Four years ago, the ISPM on seed came out. Um, prior to that moment, uh, a lot of the seed regulations were really driven by um, the market and some of the politics within a country. So if you think about seed, um, seed for the row crops, right, is very closely related to grains. So a corn seed could also be a corn grain. Um, so from that standpoint, from the row crop world, there's quite a bit of prohibitions and restrictions that have been in place. Now, from a veg perspective, this was something that even though it's been moving for decades, it's telling me it's connecting on one screen. Uh, but anyways, since veg seed's been, been moving for, for decades, um, some of those restrictions were based on the country and its assessment of um, risk. Perfect. Um, so, so really through these international standards, uh, each government then needs to declare what pests are of concern to them. They also need to tell you um, if that crop or if that uh, fruit or vegetable is able to enter uh, into commerce in their country and what um, maybe measures or practices you need to have in place to mitigate any pest risk that, that might um, tag along with it. So from a seed standpoint, you know, if I go back to that, that phytosanitary certificate, right, um, for a seed lot, many times um, seed will enter a country with a declaration such as, you know, the fields, so that indicates the mother plants, the fields were inspected and found free of certain pests. Uh, it might be a sample if seeds were taken and found free of, or in some cases, you know, particularly um, for some of the grain, you know, or, or similar grain commodities, seeds were treated with, and, you know, such as a fumigation, right? So that's kind of that overview is, so anything that really moves between two countries uh, generally falls under the, these ISPMs and some sort of a bilateral agreement. So meaning from one country who wants to ship it in to the country of destination, you know, here's what we've agreed to in terms of, of what's needed to be done. So next slide, Todd. Okay, so what is seed health? I mean, you know, many of you are pathologists, right? So plant disease, abnormal functioning of a plant. I think I got that from uh, an old Agrioche edition that I have, right? So you get some symptomology, you get reduced plant output. You know, I put an image there. You can see that that, that tomato plant in between the two healthy ones has a tospo infection, right? So it's stunted. It's a little bit more chlorotic, right? So what's plant pathology? Study of plant, plant diseases. So what's seed pathology? Well, to us, it's specifically the study of those pathogens that are associated with seed. And where this becomes important from a business standpoint is if you're in the seed business and there can be pathogens that move via seed, then obviously your product could be um, the entryway, right? <laughs> the introductory pathway for how pathogens move you know, into new markets, into... Um, other other countries, et cetera. So what the industry has done is uh, for many of us within our quality departments, there is this focus on seed health. So seed quality really reflects um, the overall sort of plant vigor, the physiology, the hybridity, as well as 
its kind of pest status of a given seedlot um, under question. So my first job when I joined, uh, actually it was the, the Legacy Vegetable Company, so it was Seminus at the time, I was actually the global seed health lead. Uh, so I had global oversight of our testing labs across the globe, and what they specialize in is testing uh, the various seeds that we produce, the various species um, for diseases. So if you think about this, you know, uh, from a tomato standpoint, you know, clavibacter comes to mind, bacterial spot, tabamal viruses are present, right? So we actually have routine um, test methods that are applied and actually routine ones that have been adopted by the industry as this is the best practice that are actually put in place. Um, an example there, that, that bottom image is just uh, a canker assay that's been performed and you can see plant died. So bacterial canker was, was found. Next slide. So a little bit of terminology here, right? So we go back to that phytosanitary piece and that trade piece. So the phytosanitary is those pests for which basically a declaration has to be made for import. So that's a country telling you, hey, I'm worried about this disease. And you got to make sure that, you know, that crop that it's, it's a, a host of is not carrying it in. So phytosanitary testing is really used to enable seed movement, right? So it's getting out of one country into another. Quality testing though, those are pathogens which we as an industry or as an individual company have said, you know what, we know that these matter. We've actually seen a negative crop impact. So again, um, you know, clavibacter on tomato, it applies, it's both a phytoorganism as well as a quality target. Um, to that, this is where the industry is focused holistically across the industry and said, you know what, we need a really good assay in place, a standard there that we can then ensure that um, the seed quality, right, that when it reaches the growers, the growers will have great success in using that seed and getting uh, a crop off of that. So quality testing really there is used to predict that field, that field performance. So what we want is a method that tells us, you know what, if it passes testing, that grower is going to have success, which means that lot is free of whatever target we just tested it for. Um, next slide. So from a standpoint, right, so quality can be phytosanitary, but if something's a phytosanitary target, that does not equate to a quality target. And the reason for that, uh, next slide there, Todd, is really, right, we have a regulatory piece and we have a business piece. And yes, so my job at the end of the day, I'm a pathologist who straddles that business need to make sure our, our seed goes out and, you know, the customers have a good experience with it, right? It, it produces the crop that is needed. Uh, but also I'm, I'm managing that regulatory need and also addressing those targets. Okay, uh, next slide. So a little bit about the seed industry. So I've been here uh, almost 15 years now, and this is just kind of just general business, right? So business really comes down to a few things. You've got to, one, make a product that is that gets there when the customers want it at the right time. You don't get it there at the right time, you know, so we're all, you know, in this country coming up on Christmas time, right? So there's a lot of inventory of all the hot products out there, right? So timing is huge. You miss that timing, you may not have a market. Uh, cost, cost is really big. Um, and one of the questions we frequently get, and I'll show you a little bit later, is a lot of the seed productions offshore, 
And the question that comes up is why? Well, at times it takes a lot of labor, a lot of specialized labor to do some of the pollination work that goes on, right? And if you think about um, that labor at a different uh, hourly pay rate as compared to, to some of the other countries, that cost goes up immensely. And then you generate a seed, it may have you know, the same quality, but at the end of the day, the customer can't afford it, right? So that cost piece is really important. And then finally, what they want for sure is the right quality. So if you have, you know, if you deliver something at the right time, the right cost, but it doesn't germinate or it's not the hybrid they wanted, or it gives them a, a disease, I can almost assure you that you're going to get a call back from the customer and say, hey, what happened here, right? Because they paid you for a product that they're relying on to make their, their um, produce. So the failure to do this may result in a loss, right, of sales or a customer. Next slide. So on this, this slide will get a little bit complicated, but I wanted to kind of give you an example of how the seed supply works, particularly for, for fruit and veg, right? So in this example, those white stars, and there's one in the Netherlands and one in Thailand, um, those are our production locations. Next slide. It's not uncommon then for the seed to be produced in those locations. And then in this example, what's produced in the Netherlands frequently will stay there, but what's produced in Thailand actually moves out of Thailand and into either the US or into the Netherlands for operational processing. So basically our mother plants, our fruit, right, are sitting in Thailand, Netherlands. Um, we harvest that fruit, we extract the seed. The seed then moves offshore, basically, into the processing locations. And then out of there, next slide, you get global distribution. So out of that US location, right, we might deliver it to Canada, Mexico, uh, Peru, right? Out of Europe, we'll be delivering at various places. What's interesting, next slide, those are your trade lanes. Um, so you think about two production locations, uh, two operational processing locations, potentially four different, or I'm sorry, seven different um, countries of where you're gonna ship it into, you actually end up with 28 different trade lanes that end up being involved just in that seed delivery. Next slide. So as I said, 28 in this example, um, in a company my size, at one point within our vegetable division, we had more than 30,000 trade lanes that were up and going, which if you think about it, that ends up pretty complicated, pretty fast. Um, the reason for it is our production locations are chosen because of, you know, as we touched on, it's around that timing, it's around kind of getting that seed there with the right, you know, producing it with the right cost point, right? Um, where are we gonna be able to move that to uh, effectively um, mill it, sort it, maybe pack it, treat it, et cetera, right? And every time it moves over a border, that is a trade lane. So you think about it, I mean, it's really complicated. So we have a, we have a huge database uh, within the U.S. If you're shipping out of the U.S., USDA actually has a database that you can access that, that helps kind of track some of those requirements and what's needed. Okay, uh, next slide. So basic business principles. So I'm sure many of you are aware of this, right? So if you have a business and it's going, well, there's always this desire on, okay, so how can I grow my business, right? Uh, increase your speed to market, 
So from that standpoint, you're like, okay, so I have a customer base today. You know, what other markets could I be into? Uh, what other production locations, right? So if I move my production location, does that change the timing? Does it change um, that delivery schedule? Is it more optimal then for that market that I'm already in? And then particularly for a company like Bear, and I was in our legacy Monsanto company, we are really big on technologies, right? Um, so we're always looking at what's new, what's different, opportunity, right? Because um, it's, never, it's never good just to stay in one place, right? You always want to strive to be better. Um, but, you know, as we've talked about, this whole thing, you know, there's a need to make business decisions on business factors. But our seed movement is regulated. So next slide. So these business principles and these regulations together lead to a lot of challenges. Next slide. So what are those challenges? You know, as we talked about it, so a trade lane, right? It's going from one country to another. Um, what's great is if you go through world trade, and actually, I mean, you guys are aware of this, you know, each country is its own sovereign entity. There are some exceptions, right? I mean, the EU, we have, what, 27, 28 countries there that kind of move in agreement and generally um, follow suit and follow the, the EU regulations. But outside of that, pretty much um, each country can set their own rules, right? They're a sovereign entity. So cumulatively, what we get is a varied list of different pest targets that we have to meet, depending on where we produced it, where we moved it to just um, maybe treat, pack, and then ship it from, and then what that final country of destination is. And what's interesting is where you produce it to where you move it. So from production to operations, there'll be requirements there. Um, from production to final destination, there are requirements there for that crop. And then also where you bring it in just to clean it, pack it right, and move it again. And each one of those, and the reason that they all have different ones is because the way trade works, it's you and me negotiating. It's not you, me, and Japan, or you, me, and Mexico, right? Or you, me, Mexico, and Japan, which, is, which would be a multilateral agreement. No, they're bilateral. Um, and if you know anything about trade, you know, right? So, so we've had some interesting things. Um, over the last four years with our president and, and trade. And he's been able to do that, you know, such as, you know, some of those things that he's enacted with our, our China relationship because we have a bilateral agreement, right? So if there was a multilateral, the other parties around the table could actually exert some influence, right? To keep it um, maybe more even keel, keep it unchanging. But the way trade works, it's, it's you and me uh, negotiating. So I thought that would be an interesting and kind of a relevant point. Um, what's, what's also interesting is some of these things, and, and um, China's a good example of this, is the veracity or the accuracy of information. So again, each country can kind of make its own requirements. Um, many countries are, are very good. Australia is excellent at putting out pest risk analysis. So they do these huge pest reviews, literature reviews, um, they then put that together in, in PRA documents that are several hundred pages long. And they say, hey, here's all the information we reviewed that concludes that we're worried about these pests. Not every country is uh, as good as Australia in that regard. Um, even the USDA to date, we've not seen a lot of their uh, PRA information that they've used. 
um, to make some of the regulations they have. But this is something that, uh, as a scientist, I do push for, uh, and I push, you know, as I worked with some of our, our seed trade association partners, we do ask that back. Um, and the reason for it is if they have, you know, really good scientific information that perhaps we've not seen in the industry, right, that indicates that this pest um, represents risk, then it's really in everyone's best interest that we'd be aware of it and we're able to adjust our processes, right, and mitigate that risk appropriately. Um, sometimes we have the same pest risk. So, so like I said, clavibacter, for example, there are certain countries that want uh, a field inspection done. There are certain countries that want a lab declaration done. Uh, uh, if you go to France, they actually want a seed treatment done that they want the seed washed uh, with hypochlorite, right? So managing all of those expectations, a lot of that comes back to like having really good track and trace systems and databases. Um, you know, small lots versus commercial lots. So what I'm talking about today, primarily with, with a lot of that movements around commercial material. So these are where we have, you know, perhaps hundreds or thousands of kilos. So you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of seeds to millions of seeds, right? And moving that around. So what's the appropriate sample size for that? Um, there is some guidance out in the ISPMs. Um, but if you get to really small lots, such as breeder material, right? And you're trying to, um, you know, putting out some experimentals and trying to just evaluate those. Oftentimes, if a country says, you know, I want you to test 20,000 seeds, well, what if I don't have 20,000 seeds in the total lot, right? So, so that's, that's something that, that, we that we encounter that can be problematic. So next slide. The long, the long and the short of this, though, is these challenges that I'm list listing here they're not specific um, to just bear. They're not specific to Syngenta or Reich Swan. Um, this is what all of us are facing today. Um, so a lot of what I spend my time doing is actually working with uh, ASTA, which is the America Sea Trade, or with ISF, who's the International Seed Federation. Um, and actually I work across the industry to say, okay, how are we collectively um, trying to address this, right? So what information can we put out? What methods should we be working on that we can get to solutions that helps us address some of these challenges? Okay, next slide. Um, so I thought this would be interesting for you to see. So what are some of those hurdles, right? So if I go back to that, that um, image of the world that I showed you, right? And here's our, our Thailand origin, our Netherlands origin, and then the various destination markets. So AU is Australia, uh, US is obviously the US, right? Um, this is just an example, and this is specifically for tomato. So if you wanna move tomato across the globe, you know, produce it in the Netherlands, send it to Turkey or France, this is actually what needs to be met. Um, and it's interesting, because you see there are some things that are pretty common, right? So clav or clavibacter's on there. Um, fee has been added recently. What's uh, interesting here is anything in bold, and I'm not sure if you can see it, but the U.S., everything is bolded in the U.S. on that list. Uh, the reason that's important was that was, asked, that was added in the past two years. There we go. Um, so if we take a step back, let's look at this. So Australia's pretty, uh, as is the U.S., they're pretty equal opportunity. They're saying, I don't care where it's produced. Um, you have to meet these requirements. So tell me it's free of these various diseases. 
before it gets here. Um, you know, a country like Japan, they've actually said, you know what? No, uh, as it turns out, we, we feel that the pressure in the Netherlands for Pepino, for PSTVD or tomato apical stunt viroid, it's greater than it is in Thailand. So I'm going to require that from that, dec- from that, you know, origin as opposed to, to Thai origin. Okay. You get some fun countries like Ecuador that there are some things on there that you don't find on any other list. Again, um, are, are we sure, you know, what is the basis of this? Uh, there are opportunities to have conversations around that. Okay. So if we go back to the, the U S um, it's been an interesting year and a half because I think we had our first federal order uh, a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, and that was all around the viroids. And then last year, early in the year, they, they then dropped a regulation on tomato brown fruit rugose virus. So prior to uh, the end of 2018, there were no requirements, you know, other than the seed had to come with a phytosanitary certificate and, you know, they would open the box and they would say, oh, it's supposed to be a tomato. They'd open it and go, yep, that's a tomato. They would close that box back up and send it on. Uh, that was the extent of declarations for the U.S. Um, why that's of significance is, you know, that image I showed you around, we produce offshore, we'll frequently move it here in the U.S., well, now what we have to do is before that seed leaves Thailand, for example, now it has to be tested officially um, for all of these pathogens of concern. Um, so you think about then, okay, so Thailand, what are you doing um, to be able to do that? It's really has started to, to impact um, availability of seed supply in a timely fashion. Okay, uh, next slide. Also for for relevance, uh, if we go back in time, so just five years ago, so for tomatoes, it is one of the most regulated species. Um, A close second or maybe a close first is corn. Um, There are more than 250 declarations that have to be met for corn if it can, uh, for it to move. And that includes sweet and dent. Um, But for tomato, we're actually now up to 280 different declarations globally. And like I said, you can kind of see it's because every country has the ability to say, you know what, this is what I'm concerned about. Here's my, my, my list for pest of concern. Okay, next slide. So, you know, if you kind of take that step back, what, what I see as a trend right now is a lot of countries are kind of reassessing that risk of seed. And a lot of them are getting really nervous about it. Um, and frankly, I would... I'm pretty close to adding the U.S. to the list. The only reason I have it is because to date, um, the only actions that they've taken have been on tomatoes um, and, you know, Mexico, Australia, Brazil and Korea, which are listed there. They have tended to have very broad uh, regulations that impact a lot of different crop species, not just tomatoes. But the U.S. um, is going through a, a pest risk analysis process. It's looking at um, what seed commodities are being imported, um, you know, what should we, we be worried about on those? And, and, and like I said, we've had two federal orders come about because they felt that there was immediate need and risk. Um, but frankly, I kind of expect uh, their seed regulations to evolve and there to be more that, that, that become um, established here 
in, in the coming years. But if you look at that, that U.S. piece, I mean, you know, the Federal Seed Act came out in the 30s. There have been prohibitions on key sp- seed species, but there wasn't a lot of real major work around this area uh, by the USDA until more, more recent times. And part of that has been because really that seed trade about 15, 20 years ago um, the global nature really started to take off. And the reason for it, it did cor- correlate to when really hybrids became um, very common, right? Uh, we get a lot of value from those. And to get that hybridity done, that pushed a lot of that uh, seed production, started pushing it offshore to, again, where you had the kind of labor and land um, and a favorable cost position point. Okay, next slide. Okay, so there's your trade overview um, at, at a high level, not very detailed, but if you, you know, I'm seeing some questions come in, so I'll be happy to, to talk to those. So let's talk a little bit around what has happened um, in the past two years. And I say, yeah, two years is about right. Uh, so there's been a new uh, virus emerged, tomato brown fruit rugose. So go ahead, uh, next slide. So let's pause here. And I know you guys can't uh, uh, answer, but on this, or maybe you could in the chat. So do you know, you know, does anybody know what the value of the U.S. fresh tomato market is? Go ahead and hit next slide. $2.4 billion. Yes, B with a billion. For the record, I did not love tomatoes until I got this job. But if you are standing in a grower's production house and he hands you something, you certainly try it. And you tell him it is the best tomato you've ever had. (laughs) And I've had some really good ones, actually. But yes, the fresh market tomato uh, in the U.S., 2.4 billion. So where does it come from? Next slide. Uh, Primarily these days, much of that, and actually 2.1 billion comes primarily from Mexico. Um, Actually, I would say that 2.1 probably represents Mexico and Canada together. Uh, there's quite a few packing houses in Canada that will bring together some Mexican origin fruit as well as Canadian origin, right? So you go to the grocery shelves these days, you see, um, well, the, the cherries have been there for a while. There's grapes. There's now the multi-pack, right? You've got the browns and the yellows and the cocktails and the grapes and uh, the pear shapes, right? Um, Americans are kind of crazy about that variety. And, and so what's happening is um, you typically, so an example there, right? So that's a high value tomato production house that you're looking at that, that bottom image. Uh, they'll produce maybe one type, multiple, ha- they might have multiple houses on site that produce various ones, but what they'll do is they'll sell that, that produce into a packing house or they'll contract it in. And then that gets packed up into those variety packs that end up on U.S. shelves. What's interesting though, is the U.S. footprint is growing. I would say 10, 15 years ago, we had a few footprints here in the U.S. Village Farms comes to mind, uh, Nature Suite as well, um, Howlings or Winset. Now, um, I'd say every two weeks or so, I'm getting some sort of a notification that we have um, new footprints and you know people are expanding because uh, one, vertical ag is becoming a, a dominant conversation, right? And that leads to local and it can also be Um, reduced inputs. I don't want to say organic, but reduced inputs to that. So that is growing in popularity. So I do expect that 
that U.S. footprint or that U.S. impact on um, where that $2.4 billion comes from to shift a little bit in the coming years. So if it's $2.4 billion, what's the value of the seed market? Next slide. So if I look from Canada to Panama, and actually I actually went back to my commercial team and asked them, the tomato and pepper seed market in that region, so basically in North America, $310 million uh, U.S. value. So pretty significant uh, trade lanes right there for sure. And then what is that production cycle length? Next slide. Um, so these tomatoes, uh, and, and as you can see, you know, in this image, right, you can kind of see the stems coming out, going up. Um, they will have these tomato plants because they're indeterminate growth, which means uh, they won't top out, right? They'll continue to grow as long as you let them. Uh, they generally put these on a rootstock, and, and Bayer has a, a good market position on, on the rootstocks out there. Um, but the right rootstock with the right scion, you can get a good uh, 11 to 12 month production cycle. So why is that important? Uh, well, you know, it matters when you're committing to contracts of production, right? And what it used to be, if you think about a tomato that only grows maybe three or four months, and then you, you might have, you know, two months of actual fruit production because it takes a little while to grow, fruit set, right, to get going. So if you take that two months of fruit production, which is a standard determinant, versus basically they can get nine months of fruit production off of this, think about then your consistency on delivery and the amount of time that you can have a production contract. So from a grower standpoint, uh, these are, are, have been huge investment opportunities, right? So you basically you plant uh, once a year. Uh, they, they, they do a lot of things in terms of kind of biologicals and, and only use chemicals as needed in their production systems, uh, but they, they keep them going uh, as much as they can. So if a disease were, were to be introduced um, from the seed, uh, particularly, so if we talk about clavibacter from the seed, there's a very good chance you, you won't get, um, you'll probably get about three months into production and then the plant will collapse. Um, it depends on the genetics. It depends on the environment. But if it comes off of seed, usually once that 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 plant gets completely loaded up and sort of maxed out on its physiological stress, so it's got six trusses on it, right? It's it's several feet in length. You, you generally they generally don't survive that period. So then the grower has to clean the entire thing out and replant, right? And again, you have to wait two months before you have fruit. So you can think about the impact that, that these, these diseases have on the grower, on the food supply. Um, and this is why seed health is, is such an important topic um, for fruit and vegetable customers. Okay. So next slide. So Tabamo viruses. Oh, how I love thee. Um, so Tabamo viruses, I mean, you guys, you guys are all pathologists, right? TMV, uh, rigid rod. Uh, you know, very broad, so there it is in tobacco, really broad host range. Um, as I like to point out, it has many different sisters <laughs> in the family. Um, so within our solanums, there's pepper mild model, bell pepper, mosaic, right? Um, some others, TMV, TOMV, TOMMV, oh, TMGMV, which is regulated in Mexico. <laughs> A lot of letters in there. Uh, but not to be left out, they also severely impact the cucurbits 
as well. Um, the primary way of dealing with these diseases has been through resistance over the years, right? So it's been identified, usually comes from some wild type genetics. They can breed that in. Um, and resistance here is kind of that, it, it's how I learned resistance, which is, you know, the plant's infected, but it shows no symptoms. So essentially it becomes an asymptomatic carrier. So it's interesting because we do have uh, an international seed health uh, initiative where all the companies um, kind of bring their seed pathologists together and, and in a room and they uh, develop and validate seed health testing methods together. So actually, uh, Tabama viruses on pepper was the driver for the industry getting together and saying, hey, we really have to pay more attention to the seed health area. And when that brought us together, that first uh, Tabamo was actually 25 years ago in, in Pepper. So what is the, the typical screening today for Tabama viruses has been um, an ELISA test. You know, what's nice about that is it's kind of a broad um, or general detection method, right? So it's going to pick up many different strains, maybe not just, just TMV or TOMV or Pepper model, right? And then if you get an ELISA positive, generally they take that seed extract, they put it onto actually a tobacco plant with an N gene, and, and you look for that local lesion, which is that, that bottom image, right? So the industry has been testing for tobacco viruses in kind of a general way um, for decades, right? But as I said, what's interesting about this family is you know, the list of kind of known viruses is growing. So I think it was 10 years ago, Kaisha Lang talked about tomato mild model. This one actually breaks one of the, the TM genes, but not both. TOBRFV actually breaks both of the resistant genes. Uh, recently, the WG stands for watermelon green. That was a new cucurbit infecting uh, strain that, that's been described. Actually, it was described in California as well, right? And, and part of this is, um, well, one, we have some resistance pressures, right? So we've got evolution um, of, of these uh, viruses. But the other one is, is as the, the use and the availability of genetic testing has come along, that's been a way to kind of differentiate them a little bit easier than in the past, right? So, so we used to have kind of the, this lumping, oh, it's just a Tabama virus. Yes, it'll be picked up this way, right? Now we're actually able to differentiate them better um, through genetic testing. So next slide. So TOBRFE, so, so I touched on this already. It's a Tabamo, rigid rod, right? 6.4 kilobases, uh, resistant breaking. Yep, it breaks, there's actually two genes out there. It breaks both of those in tomato, um, but not the L genes or the L4 of pepper. Pepper's still being um, investigated a bit because the L genes should lead to uh, kind of a, a local lesion and a um, uh, eventually your leaf will die and fall off. But there have been some reports of finding it in pepper. So pepper has been equally as regulated as tomato um, in all the conversations. So if you think about the way for growers, right, to manage Tabamo viruses previously was, hey, you know, if I'm worried, if I'm in a, an area that has high pressure, if I've experienced this, experienced this before, I want to make sure that my hybrids have resistance in them. Well, now this one, right, just breaks right through. It doesn't matter if the plant is resistant or not, this is going to manifest. So in 2018, there was a 
pretty big outbreak in Mexico. Um, you know, and as we talked about, right, there's a lot of tomato production and pepper production down there, but particularly in these protected growing environments. So, so in their houses down there, they had a lot of losses. Um, there were also some, I think there was a report on the West coast of California at that time, you know, over time though, we've now seen this go. Okay. So Mexico had an issue in 18. There were a few reports here and there in 18 and other countries in 19, it started being reported in Europe. Uh, this year in Europe, it continued to be a problem. And now uh, there's broad reports of it being detected in Canada. So pretty much wherever you have the uh, high value protected tomato production, this thing has moved in and become well-established. And again, for the growers, the, the big struggle has been they absolutely can manage through uh, quite a few diseases, but they've not seen this before. Uh, but it was interesting because in 18, Mexico had a hard time. There was a lot of testing that went on, uh, a lot of cleaning that went on, and we're hearing subdued reports on, on outbreaks, um, both in 19 and, and 20 this year. Um, what's important, though, is because this is new to science, right? Uh, so how many governments responded to that was, oh, well, this is a quarantine organism. Quarantine because, yes, it's new. It's not well understood. And hey, it's not been here before, right? So they've been trying to have a lot of prevent and eradicate efforts, uh, which has then led to a lot of crop destruction. So the growers, um, and, and, and I, I, I frequently kind of reach out and support our commercial team as they talk with growers, right, around disease concerns. Um, so reaching out and I've talked with two US-based companies and I say US-based because they're here, but their productions are actually um, within the region of North America, two of them mentioned that they've lost 25 million to this disease um, in the past year. And, and the reason for it, so what the growers are doing is if they think, if they, think they have it, right, um, they test uh, if, if they, you know, and what they'll do is they'll not only take out the plant they see, but the plants around. And then eventually, right, because it's so, you know, just mechanically transmitted, highly trans, transmissible, um, before they know it, it, it's like throughout the house. So, so they, they're closing down, you know, houses on, on their property, not just taking out um, a section or sections of rows, which would be recommended for, you know, kind of a, a contained. So why is this important? Because we went from this being not regulated. So if I talked to you two years ago, I've been like, all is well in the world. Uh, in the past two years, this is absolutely, yes, it is the COVID. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> Uh, this is one of the most regulated pathogens that there are. Um, so next slide. Sam, I just want to let you know, we only have about 10 minutes left. Okay. For the hour, and I want to make sure we have some time for questions. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, so real quickly, these are all the primers that are out there. You can see there's uh, a lot of TACMANs, a lot of conventionals. Next slide. So the regulation nightmare, um, basically, here's some countries that have regulated it. This is what they require. This is the required testing detail, right? And what's fun now, there's a whole bunch of countries that are like, you know, it can come in with that declaration from a different country. I don't know that I trust it. I will be checking that, <laughs> that declaration effectively. Uh, so next slide. So on this, what has happened? 
So first of all, this degree of specification around, it has to be 20,000 seeds with 400 seed subsample sizes, and it has to be these primers. This is sort of unheard of uh, for sure, right? Um, you know, what if the country cannot apply the specified method? Well, I'm sorry, it can no longer get in, right? Um, to me, the bigger piece here is we now have, okay, so if the U.S. tested and the Netherlands tested, who's right? Who's wrong? Who, you know, how do we resolve this, this issue? And I will say it was funny because yeah, I saw the COVID comment. Um, so this in the U.S. and the EU, uh, so the U.S. put a regulation in, uh, I think it was the end of last year. The EU put one in this year. Absolutely. What has happened? Uh, so right in February, a, a lot of those um, countries or regions started having to test for COVID. So if you overlay the need to do this 2OBRP testing, which we didn't have to plan for, we didn't have to do a year ago, right? So in a year, it has massively changed. So has that human health testing that, that needs to be done. Um, I was talking to our lab people who told me in June, they were still waiting on back orders from supplies that they ordered at the beginning of March. Why? because the reagents, the resources were absolutely strapped with everything that was going on with the upscale of COVID, right? Um, so, so this has been, it's been an interesting situation to navigate and to see um, and to talk about, yes, I mean, you have all these different test methods, who's right, who's wrong. Um, and we can go ahead and go to the next slide. So kind of that looking forward, right? And I always kind of try to kind of leave you guys with a kind of think bigger. So what opportunities have come out of this? So from a pathology standpoint, oh my word. Uh, yeah, I, I commented the other day, I think we just need somebody to just understand all of these Tabama viruses, you know, the diagnostics, early detections. What other families should we be monitoring, right? Um, how do you get diagnostics in the hands of the right people? How do we enable? Because so much of, of what we do so much of our food supply actually, right? So me as a company, a lot of what I do is offshore um, in these areas where you can get the land and the people, right? Um, we do a lot of you know, oversight, but how do we enable even broader oversight, right? So how do we work with those universities there, right? Because our goal is to find these problems before they manifest, right? So we don't want this carried through. Um, so what are some early detection options there? That's definitely something um, as I'm looking out, very much a need because we're global. And for, for as much as we've become, you know, individual countries are starting to push back and, you know, focus internally in me, 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 a lot of what, you know, our food supply, our resources, it's global, right? Um, Science-based conversations are an opportunity out of this. So like I said, which data points are correct? How should NASA be validated? I mean, I've talked with government scientists who don't have a positive control. Oh boy. Uh, okay, you know you're doing the best you can, but but how how do you deal with that? You know, how do we, like I said, if it's tested in the U.S. and it's tested in the Netherlands, and they both get a different answer, who's right? Who's wrong? And we're also dealing with a technology that's really, well, could be, uh, you know, prone to false positives, right? More so than than the technology we've had previously. And then how do we kind of work together to tackle that, that future, right? Because we're all in this together, trying to secure a reliable you know, seed supply, which secures basically our food supply. So with that final slide, thank you all for the invitation and I'm happy to take any questions.
I see one question here. I may have missed one, but um, from Dylan that says, has there been any observation of the increased regulation on imports leading to a greater focus on domestic production? Uh, that's a good question. And um, right now, there are a lot of companies who are rerunning the numbers, trying to understand uh if there are any opportunities to do that. Uh, I, I would say um, what has happened in the past 18 months has caused us to, to review where we are in terms of our production footprint and, and, and the trade lines that we utilize and ask the question, okay, are, are there any opportunities to shift? So everybody right now, and, and you know, because I work across, uh, we're all looking at that, at that opportunity <laughs> that has come up. Um, for, for some crops, so, so to be clear, you know, there are quite a few beans, um, there's quite a few cucurbits that are, you know, seed production here in the U.S. for the U.S. market. Um, these selenums, because of the, the hybridization need, right, the pollination need, um, that tends to be offshore. So, you know, I, I think what it will drive to is some, what are the technologies maybe to automate the pollination, because that would certainly then, you know, entice companies to, to kind of come back. Wait, wait, I had, I had a question about mm -hmm. what's your thoughts on why there's so much um, variation between the individual countries' requirements? Is, has there been any um, activity trying to harmonize that at all and at, at, at the UN level or even in the WTO or, or the likes or similar organizations? Um, so, so the WTO has, has been a little bit... Uh, Kind of hands off. There's your guidance, right? Um, we'll, we'll allow you to um, operate. Uh, for for those countries who have actually said, okay, here's my my pest risk analysis, and here's then my proposed regulations. Uh, we do um, work with the USDA to look at that information and say, you know what? Yeah, what they what they put out there is absolutely valid, right? It totally makes sense. Or in some cases, say, you know, I I don't know that this was the most uh, robust work um, to support that this organism should be on their on their list. So we we do operate that way again. Um, and what we do is like so that information, like I said, for me, I'll, I'll support or I'll provide the information to ISF, who will then work across, you know, so they'll get that feedback from the USDA. They'll get that feedback. Um, from various other countries as well, where we do try to influence it that way. Okay. Maybe I'll ask just one last one mm -hmm. a little bit, but what, what do you think is the biggest, um, the biggest need at the moment to be able to either do the testing to sort of reach the requirements um, to sort of increase the speed um, of importation, I guess? The, the great struggle is we, we've had a lot of countries implement regulations. Um, so, so the example in the U.S., the U.S. just pushed it all offshore. So it has to get here um, with, with the declaration, right? Uh, the EU has done a similar thing, pushed it off, but then the EU said, okay, I'm going to check 20% of what, what comes in. Um, what they did not really account for is one, what is the capability of my trading partner outside, right? So that exporting country, what are their, their capabilities? And two, um, so for the EU, I mean, right now, 
uh, it's, it's a normal six to eight week queue to get a result. Um, so it's, it's created, uh, some bottlenecks we'll say, because, you know, um, we're in these production locations, they have a, a, a production window, right? So at the end of that window, it's not just me, but it's also, you know, Syngenta, Reichswan, HM Klaus, Lemigrant, all of us harvesting at the same time. And then there becomes this queue to get your material tested such that you can then get that, you know, exported, right? And then similarly, once it then arrives, um, such as in the Netherlands, they pull their sample and then it has to sit in our facility for that for another six to eight week time frame until we can access it. So, um, and you guys may have heard this, you know, around like, why is there a paper towel shortage, right? Because it's just in time production, you know, your days on hand. So how long you have it and you own it, um, that matters, right? Because you can, you can be kind of taxed on that and you want that to be minimum. So for the veg seed trade, because for many years, we didn't have a lot of testing requirements that timeline then to get that exported, imported, to get that, you know, operationally conditioned, and then basically out to your customers, there was a certain fixed timeline associated with that. Now, um, that has been delayed. And it's been delayed to the point of, you know, are we effectively bringing in inventory today? So our 20 inventory, but because of the delays getting it out of the country of origin and getting it into the, the, the next country, is it's effectively 22's sales inventory and not not 21. So so that that's been the great challenge. And I think um, part of the struggle with the COVID and then not traveling right now, we are talking about governments. You know, I mean, Thailand has some great researchers in their universities, but are they well versed in the real time assays versus the conventional technologies? Right, there is a need for that um, outreach for that education. Um, either PPO to PPO or through the, the seed trade associations. And that's been really hindered as well. Um, and that, that's where, you know, many of us are, are kind of hopeful that we get back to, you know, some sort of a normal, um, just from the standpoint on, you know, facilitating the resources that are needed to help um, address some of these, th these new struggles, that they can actually then be mobilized. Great. So we're, we're at the hour. I, I want to thank you again, Dr. Thomas, for, for joining us. This has been really fascinating. Um, and so thank you again. Um, and thank you, everyone, um, for joining us this semester. Um, good luck on your finals and wrapping up the semester. And we will see everyone back here again um, in the middle of January, on January 19th. So thank you all. Perfect. Thank you. Have a good day.